The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Lifting up his eyes to heaven, Jesus prayed, saying, I pray not only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be brought to perfection as one, that the world may know that you sent me, and that you loved them even as you loved me. Father, they are your gift to me, I wish that where I am, they also may be with me, that they may see my glory that you gave me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and they know that you sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will make it known, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. The Gospel of the Lord. It is no mere coincidence, no accident of the lectionary that we have this particular combination of readings set all together. The great high priestly prayer that Jesus makes on the night before he dies, in the place of the first mass, the last supper, where he gives us the great sacramental banquet that we are about to celebrate. And that first reading where the apostle Paul brilliantly exploits lack of unity, lack of oneness. Note the contrast. The Lord's Prayer for unity and St. Paul's making creative use of disunity, of division. It's a remarkable conjunction of incidents, this prayer of Jesus and this legal proceeding against St. Paul, who has been arrested as he returned to Jerusalem for charity. He had taken up a collection around the Mediterranean for the starving believers in Jerusalem. And as he arrives on this mission of mercy, those who were once his co-religionists, desire to initiate some kind of legal proceeding against him. And the city is agitated. And so agitated that 
the Roman authorities intervene because they are puzzled what all the upset is about. And so they convene a proceeding. The Sanhedrin, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, the Roman officials, and St. Paul. And this is an opportunity for the authorities to try to get a sense of what on earth is the cause of a division of, of such anger that it threatens the peace of the city itself. And as they gather, much like we see in the world around us today, we see that it is a gathering of the deeply polarized. And so imagine for a moment what would happen if you had a gathering, and I'm going to stereotype, okay? So just hang with me for a second. But we had a gathering of very conservative Republicans and very liberal progressive Democrats all in the same room. And they're there because someone has been saying things that somebody doesn't like and maybe all of them don't like. And this person stands up and says, you got to understand, I'm a conservative and I'm being attacked by the evil liberals because of my position on gun rights. And imagine the argument that would break out. Imagine the knee-jerk argumenting that would break out. I'm a fellow liberal. I'm calling to my brother and sister progressives. And I am being attacked by these others because of my position on structural racism in the United States. And imagine the argument. Imagine how quickly, all of a sudden, nobody is interested anymore in truth, but about attacking the one who disagrees. This is what happens when we define ourselves in terms of who we oppose and what we stand against. This is what was going on in the Sanhedrin. On the one hand, they are supposed to be the one religious authority for Judaism. On the other hand, they were composed of competing parties who defined themselves not so much primarily in terms of what they were for, but in terms of who they were against. And so note what happens. St. Paul, who is preaching a gospel that actually challenges all of them, and has managed, in a sense, to upset everyone, is brought into this setting, and he looks out there, and he sees this rigid hardness of heart and mind. And what does he do? He turns to the Pharisees and says, Brothers, I'm one of you. I'm a Pharisee, and my dad was a Pharisee. And I've been standing and teaching in your camp most of my life. And the issue is, I'm proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and I'm attacked because I believe in the resurrection. And this was the great dispute between these two parties. And note, in Judaism, there was no unambiguous belief in the resurrection. The Sadducees 
did not hold to a resurrection in it from the dead. And all of a sudden, all Paul had to do was exploit, mention the difference, and all of a sudden, everybody got so upset about the difference, they began attacking each other. And the irony is the Pharisees come to Paul's defense, but his gospel is equally challenging to them. But they don't even hear it. Because all they hear is he agrees with me on this one point. And the others, they miss the fact that he is equally challenging to the Pharisees because all they hear is he disagrees with me on this one point. Note how this tendency is alive and well in our world today, in our culture today, in our society today, and lamentably, all too often even in our church today. We tribalize ourselves and we define ourselves oppositionally. And here is an example of the gospel of Paul, the apostle, the church, showing us the truth of what Jesus says, a house divided against itself cannot hope to stand. And the conflict gets so violent that the Roman authorities are worried they're going to tear St. Paul apart. Now imagine that. The Pharisees are pulling him over to their side. And the Sadducees want to pull him over to condemn him. And there's a worry that in this disagreement that now has nothing to do with the gospel Paul is preaching, he's going to get torn apart by the parties using him as a football. And if we, if we the believing community, are not careful, this is what happens to the faith. When we submit it, to political concerns, to economic concerns, to family concerns, to concerns that are less than the gospel. What happens is it becomes an object of convenience. And it becomes a way for the believer to be pulled away from the center of the faith without even realizing it. Well, so-and-so said he's pro-life, everything must be good. So-and-so said they're pro-social justice, everything must be good. No, it's not that cut and dry, and it's not that easy. Unity and following the gospel is a much harder thing than that. This is why Jesus prays for it. Because if it was easy, we'd be doing it all the time, and we don't. And so note his prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus says on the night before he dies. And notice it's not may they always have the correct positions. It's not may they always be fervent. It's not may they always be bold missionaries or may they be mighty miracle workers. May they be one. And may they be one in what I have given them. Note how remarkable that is. Note how beautiful that is. A oneness not in terms of social agenda. 
a oneness not in terms of political authority, a oneness not in terms of whose sense of the best works there are, but a oneness in the love with which Christ has loved us. What a powerful point this is. And he says this the night before he dies because he's about to love us to the point of dying for us. And note what he's also saying. May my death not be meaningless. May my gift not be cast aside. But I am dying not for some of them, but for all of them. May they be one. And note here as the Lord prays how simple this is and yet how gloriously difficult it is to live and achieve. This oneness of his body. And here again the Lord is emphasizing something that in our modern age we forget too easily. You know, and uh, one way of getting at it is this. You know, we Catholics sometimes with our separated brothers and sisters run into interesting conversations and certain questions often come up time and time again. For example, brother, are you saved? And the Catholic answer to that is, yes, we are. Not simply, yes, I am. Because, before, because Jesus only saves you or me by saving us. He doesn't save you and save me and save you and then bring us together. He saves us. And he saves you and me by connecting us to him. Note how marvelous that is. I give my life not for each one separately and then bring them together. I give my life for all of them. And that is their togetherness. We like to personalize and individualize and customize things. And yet before we can do any of that on the level of faith, we first have to receive what Jesus gives us. And in giving us himself, he also gives us to one another. That's the interesting and important thing. On the day of your baptism and my baptism, a number of things happened. We are forgiven of original sin. We become adopted into the household of God. But the simple fact of the matter is all of this happens because Jesus incorporates us into himself. And he makes us members of his body which means you guys are stuck with me. And I'm connected to you. And note, we didn't get to choose that. We don't get to pick who the other members of the body are. Jesus gives them to us. And the other members of the body don't get to pick us. We're given to them. May they be one. One body of Christ, one faith, because he loves us with one love. And know what he says, and it's the love, Father, that you gave to me. And it is such a great thing 
that I give it to them. And may they be one in me, because that is how the world will most fully know who I am, and that you and you alone sent me. Because this is the kind of unity the world doesn't know and doesn't understand and runs away from. What a remarkably beautiful reality this is, and how good it is that we can reflect on it just a couple days before we celebrate Pentecost. Because the Holy Spirit comes down upon the church not first to give it power for mission. It comes down on the church first to knit it together into the one united body of Christ that will then go forth empowered for mission. And note, those who are one in Christ will be given one spirit so that we all are one in the spirit in which we act and pray and think. And this prayer of Jesus then becomes the very essence of what happens when we gather for Mass. We gather as one. And note, we sit, we stand, we respond as one. And there's a beautiful symbolism in that. The standing at the same time, the sitting at the same time, the kneeling, the answering together at certain moments. That's not mere choreography. That becomes a visible expression of the unity of the body that Christ has formed. A unity of those who gather, a oneness in spirit, a oneness in of intention, a oneness in prayer, a oneness of belief. And as we gather in that oneness and pray in a way that is expressive of that oneness, then we come forward and note what we say about this moment of the Mass. We say we receive Holy Communion. Let's just pause with that statement. First, we receive it. We don't achieve it. It is a gift. And we receive it from whom? We receive communion from Christ. You don't receive communion from me. We don't receive communion from each other. All of us receives communion from Christ. And that communion that we receive is never merely private. It is not that I get to receive Jesus into my heart and I have a disconnected intimacy with him that doesn't involve you. We receive communion with each other as well in this sacrament. That's the beautiful thing. The body of Christ gets up and comes forward and receives the body of Christ. Note how marvelous this is. The church receives its oneness. We gather in a oneness of faith, and we come forward and we continue to receive that oneness of the life of Christ, which is our union and which is our unity. 
how absolutely marvelous this is, but it is a gift that must be received. But there is no receiving communion with Jesus that in the end doesn't involve communion with his body. We do this together. And that's the other thing, because however well you or I could pray at home, what we can't do at home is receive this sacrament. We have to come together for it. We have to come out for it. We have to be together for it. Know how it works. And it's deeply personal and deeply individual for each and every one of us, and yet it involves every single one of us. The body of Christ comes forward and receives the body of Christ. And recognizing that, St. Augustine, very beautifully one day, conscious of exactly that, looked out at his congregation and challenged them to do this as they came forward to receive the sacrament. And it was, receive who you are. The body of Christ receives the body of Christ. Receive who you are and become who you receive. May they be one, Father, as you and I are one. May they be one. In this sacrament, celebrate it well. We have the fullness of that prayer of Christ. Amen.